0: As we come to the scripture now, let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me, Father. Now, I pray that you would enable us, uh, by your grace, to listen, to hear and heed uh, your word. I pray that um, you would attend your word with your spirit and cause it then to work deeply within us. You've said it's living and active, and I pray that it would be alive in our hearts and as that two-edged sword would go deep within us. Uh, your grace has been with us uh, always, but most certainly from the moment we walked into this place this morning to worship. And so I pray that it would continue to be with us, this grace, for without it um, we're lost. So thank you for attending your word by your Spirit. To us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah in chapter 6. Nehemiah in chapter 6, please. As you know, we're in Nehemiah chapter 6 because last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, so, simply moving along. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at uh, Hakafarim uh, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of uh, Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, So such a man as I run away. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did— And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and all the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt uh, greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God." Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of, of, of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of the good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now remember, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. There are exiles who had come back to establish again Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, which they did, and to establish life as the people of God in the city of God. But the walls were not yet rebuilt, not repaired. And so the city was vulnerable. So many of the people lived outside of the city. And real life as it was to be, as the people of God in Jerusalem, was not taking place. And so uh, Nehemiah was sent back by God. Remember, he had been a slave in Persia, in Susa, the capital, and had, uh, been the cupbearer to the king. And with sort of that in, if you will, when he received news about the walls not yet being rebuilt, uh, he was able to, to speak to the king after much, many months of prayer and fasting and so forth. Speak to the king about sending, about the king sending him back with various resources in order to rebuild the wall. All that took place, Nehemiah is there. Now you may remember that he, 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 he faced opposition. In chapter 4, there were those from the outside, the Sanballat, Tobian, Geshem, who were sort of rulers in various little regions or provinces around Jerusalem. And they had come against him because they had a vested interest in Jerusalem staying weak. They didn't want to have another strong uh, city, especially one that could be devoted to the, the Lord, uh, the creator of all that is, and, uh, and thus separate them from all the other uh. Provinces or cities around and so they they didn't want the walls to be rebuilt And so they came against the city and the builders of the walls in various ways and we saw that And then last Sunday we saw that there were difficulties from within in building up this city and building these walls And some grumbling and complaining and all of that and opposition from within and we saw how God uh, through Nehemiah dealt with that and so, to be really honest with you, I come to this particular chapter, and I'm thinking we're done pretty much, right? We've got a opposition from without, opposition from within. What else could happen? Surely the walls—the next chapter will just be about how the walls get finished, and that's that. But it's not that. There's opposition now against Nehemiah, who is the leader, and that often happens. In various settings, right? If there's a leader, there are leaders, then one of the ways to destroy the work that's going on is to come after the leader, the leadership, those in charge. Because if leaders lead well, then they're trusted. And if they're trusted, they'll be followed. But if there's some way to disrupt the leadership of that leader and make him take wrong paths, then everybody follows in these wrong paths and the work is destroyed. And so here's Nehemiah, and now they come against him. And remember, in Nehemiah's mind, he's not simply building walls. But as we said a number of weeks ago, he's really building church. That is, he's really cr- building these walls so that within those walls and that kind of safety, that the people of God can worship and live as the people of God in the city of God. And so there's a sense in which he's building church. And so our interest in this, in addition to simply learning what's true in the scripture, our interest in this is asking the question, how does this help us build church? For That's what we're doing. We're building one another up. And since we're the church, when we're building one another up, we're building church. That's what we're doing. Uh, a group of worshipers, a worshiping community uh, who live together. And love one another as Christ has loved us. And so so that's our interest here. Remember I told a story last Sunday about a situation where my daughter, made a, when she was young, made a great observation about a, a group of people in a church who had built a fine building but couldn't get along. And she mentioned to me, Dad, you know, they built a building but not a church. And she came by that notion honestly because that's how we always talk in our family and in our church about church. It's not about the building, it's about the people. It's, it's who we are as as the church, as the people of God. It was always funny to me uh, when we were worshiping uh, in the early 90s at Deerfield Elementary School. People would often ask me, when are you going to build your church? And first I had to say, well, it's not mine. Uh, and secondly... We started building the church uh, from the first time we gathered to worship on. And they would say, well, where is it? And I would say, well, it's sort of all over. You know, I I know where some of the church is today, but it's all over the city. In fact, some people are out of town. Some church is out of the country. And they would look at me like... Now, that was kind of a snarky answer because I knew what they were asking, really. but, But I couldn't give in to let myself really answer it by saying, oh, we have a building fund and a building committee and blah, 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 blah. I just, you know, because that wasn't what, that's not really the church. This building isn't any more the church than your house is your real home, right? We talk about going home. Well, we we go to a location, but we know what that means. We're going to those people. That's our family. That's our home. Well, this is, houses us, but this isn't the church, right? It, the church is us. When we go to church, we come to us. We gather together. That's the sense of it. I know we know that, but it's just important, I think, always to remind ourselves of that. That's why, in our language, we often we refer to this facility as the church house. And so I get that question, too. Somebody will call and say, I, I read that this activity is happening at the church house. Where's that? They <laughs> say, well, that's the place we gather you know it as the church but what we call it the church house just so you know so our interest here is is when opposition comes whether it's from outside against all of us whether it is coming from the inside from us or whether it's coming at leaders however it's coming uh we, we want to know how to navigate that uh, how really to deal with that so that the real work of church doesn't stop all right you with me got it we together on that. You can I know you're Presbyterians, but you really can move. So can you get we were the guy, that's good. All right. Thanks. I appreciate that a lot. Um, now. So there's three traps that get set up, and if you were I'm sure you were, as you're listening to the very end of it, it's kinda has a bit of a soap opera ending. Because while there's three traps and he deals with them, there's still something going on at the very end. And we're not told how that's resolved. If you could read this as a soap opera, those last few verses, it's its the soap opera look at the end, you know, as they look at each other and the commercial happens. So that's this. sense. so we don't know how that's going to be resolved. But we guess that God will help them through it because he's helped them through these others. First trap is this. Nehemiah gets this letter from these two um, sort of provincial leaders, leaders of various provinces around uh, Sanballat and Geshem. And they send him a letter and they invite him to a summit. And Nehemiah sees through that and realizes they're going to do him harm. So he gives them an answer, which is no, but he gives them an answer that is true. That I'm involved in something very important here and I can't stop the work in order just to come to you and talk to you. Now the question is, what about that invitation would have been tempting at all to Nehemiah? What was in their minds? Why did they think he was going to respond? And of course, we don't know the content of it, but it's likely something like this. Uh, Dear Nehemiah, you you know we've been against your work, but congratulations, the wall's almost done. So let's let bygones be bygones, and come on, summit with us up in this uh, place uh, Hak-keferim in the plain of Ono. Come up here and, um, and, and summit with us so we can rule this whole territory together. Let's be friends. Now, that doesn't seem unreasonable, really, from a political standpoint, from their uh, point of view. Uh, but, 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 but somehow, Nehemiah saw through it. It could have been that, as he said, you're going to harm me, it could be that he was thinking that whatever you're going to do here will uh, discredit us or put us into a situation as Jerusalem that we shouldn't be in, and so that will harm us. But it's most likely that he saw, perhaps, that they were going to kill him. I mean, that's the sense of it that he would be invited to the summit and he would go and then a letter would come to the people in Jerusalem saying something like this. Dear people of Jerusalem, it grieves us to tell you that on his way to our summit, Nehemiah fell upon robbers and they killed him and thus we grieve with you in the city of Jerusalem. And that would have put an end to Nehemiah. What would have that done to the to the rebuilding of the walls, the finishing of the walls, the placing of the gates? And all of that would have made the city more vulnerable. And so so that's the situation. It could be that even this could have appealed to me, Nehemiah's pride. Finally, I make the big time. I'm, I'm being invited by these by these big shots, of Sanballat and Geshem, and we're gonna have this great summit together. And now, together, we can rule this entire place. I just came to rebuild walls, and look at this—what a promotion! Now, all of a sudden, I'm one of the key leaders of the known world, right? have appealed to his pride or his fear, perhaps, of security. If we can become friends, then maybe they'll stop their opposition. But Nehemiah saw through it all, really. And he wrote back to them, that which is true. I've got this great work to do, and I can't stop the work in order to come to you. And there's a sense in which, you see, that his priority that he had because of his calling... Enabled him not to get sucked into the trap Because even if this was a good thing Even if they didn't have any ulterior motives at all Still it would have stopped the work for Nehemiah to go And the people might have wondered where is he And they may not have set the, wall, set the gates and, and finished it all up And who knows what would have happened while he was away And how long that would take And so, so Nehemiah I have to say this Nehemiah when they said come to Ono said Oh, oh no. And uh, I just whew, had to get that out of my mind so I can think about other things. And uh, thank you very much. But he wouldn't go, right? Because um, he knew that it was he knew that it was in a trap. But but what saved him, in a sense, what God the means God used was was his priority. He knew his calling, and that was really his treasure to provide for the people of God a place where their community, their worshiping community, their church could thrive and flourish. That was more important than anything else. You know, I think in the context of our own lives that it's important for us to to take that inventory. Where, What is our treasure? Thus, where is our heart? Because that will establish the priorities of our life. What's really important to us? But and you see, once those are established, then it helps us make decisions. It helps us decide, yes, we'll do this, or no, we won't. Um, and it, it, so it, it, it's very important, these priorities that, that we establish, you see, because they reveal our heart. If you're going to save, uh, if your heart is to own your own house, Then you'll save for it. And so if other opportunities come up and for using your money in particular ways, you'll say, oh no, I I won't, I won't use my money for that because I don't want to stop saving for this. Or if you're a student and you, you have a desire to get out of college in a minimal number of years and, and you have opportunities for other things, you may say, oh no, I I can't do that. Why? Because I have these other, I have this priority to finish school. Or if you have an exam on Friday, you may say, well, I, I can't, Do that on Thursday night because I have to study for my exam. That's my priority. And so those are good things. Those help us to make decisions. Those priorities that we have. Those priorities that are established. That are in place. That are based on, I trust. Our treasure. Which is Jesus. In the glory of God. And then when. Opportunities arise that conflict with that. You say, no, 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 I can't go. I can't do that. Because it conflicts with what I know is good. That is the glory of God. That's, I'm called to follow after him. This would take me on a path away from him and away from that. I'm always grateful that Karen and I were able to realize the value of being part of a worshiping community uh, in our lives. That, that came way before I got paid to go to church. Um, uh, and, and so so you might think I have a, you know, well, we pay him. Of course he shows up. Um, but uh, we were 13 years married before anybody paid me to go to church. Uh, and in those early years, trust me, they didn't pay me enough to make it that worth, <laughs> worth my while. But anyway, um, we... Uh, uh, we had, and it's important we realize that gathering as the people of God, as God calls us to do, is his wisdom. And so gathering as the people of God each week, for us, reflects our treasure that is to worship God. And so when things would come under our paths, like on Sunday mornings, we'd just simply say, no, it was easy, in a sense. No, no. No, this, is, this is it. This is what we do on Sundays. And so, no. And, and it really wasn't a hard thing. And we could honestly, as Nehemiah did, write back and say, well, we can't be engaged in that. We can't be involved in that because that would take us away from church. And, and church is a good thing. And church is a necessary thing. And it's a priority. It's the hub of our lives and our week to gather with this people of God. And so it made it an easy thing for us to be able to, to say that. Um, The danger, of course, is that just as Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem wanted to make friends with Nehemiah, and he realized we can't really be friends. Lepers don't change their spots. And so, no, I have to keep on with my work. I can't join you. We can't be friends. Because, you see, enemies are the most dangerous when they seek to become our friends. And so there are many friends that attract us like for us on Sunday mornings Many good things happen on Sunday mornings other than coming to worship. I mean good things Right, Uh, you can gather with other people on Sunday mornings and have breakfast. That's a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing Uh, But yet it takes away from the best thing Uh, The elephant in the room of course is sports on Sunday morning for families uh, Bless you I- I'm so glad I don't have kids uh, Of that age now uh, That have to negotiate that And deal with all that uh, We didn't have that temptation quite the same way uh, That you all do But sports, I think anyway Is a good thing It teaches teamwork and sacrifice And families gather together And sit together It's a wonderful time and so the friends of all the things that can happen on a Sunday morning say, let us be friends. We can come and give you a lot of what you get at church. Right? But will that eventually kill us? That's the question. Our work is really good. You know me, I'm a huge advocate for work. I love to work. And, uh, uh, well, I love certain kinds of work. Uh didn't want to give my wife, Karen's going, oh cool man, this is great, I got four bushes that need to be moved, and no, I don't, I don't particularly cherish that kind of work, I like book work. Anyway, and talking, uh, so anyway, I, I like, kind of, I love work, and and, 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 and it's a good thing, you see. But, there are friends of work, if you will, want to make friends with me and say, Bill, this is good to do, and 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 this is good to do, and, to do. and before you know it, Work is my God. And it's the thing that defines me and directs me. And God no longer directs me and defines me in my work. But my work defines and directs my relationship with God. And that's not good. Right? Even though work itself is really good. Right? Family is good. But we have to be careful. Family can define and direct us. And family can define and direct our relationship with God rather than God defining our relationship with family. And when that happens, you see, a good thing has taken over, and now it's an idol, and it harms us. And so we have to be cautious. With whom we make friends and alliances, this has been a great thing for us as a church, for us as a church to always be asking ourselves the question, why are we here, what are we to do? The other morning I was studying with a group of men, uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And we thought through the fact that the kingdom of God, which is our treasure, this kingdom that is graciously ruled by Jesus, the kingdom of God, which is our treasure, spreads by the sowing of his word. Right? You know that parable. So the kingdom spreads by the sowing of his word. And so we're always, as a church, asking the question, how does this spread? The kingdom by the spreading of the word of God. And you know our my little motto at least. That the ministry rises and falls in the power of God's word. Working by his spirit to change people's lives. And so we're always asking that question. And so when we're asked to make friends. We're always asking. Whether it's with a program or whatever it's joining with. We're always asking the question. How does this enable us to do that? And if it doesn't enable us to spread the word of God and spread the gospel and make disciples of Jesus, then no, sorry, we've got more important work to do. Now, that work that they're calling us to may be really important work, really great work to do. But for us as a church, no. And it keeps us, you see, keeping the main thing, the main thing. We're often asked as a church to join with other communities of faith. And I always ask the question, faith in what or whom? Because I have much in common with every other human being, right? I'm a person they're people (laughs) and so we laugh and we cry and we eat and we drink and we work and we share community and we we, you know all those things that, that human beings do so we share a ton of that and many of us share a lot because we're citizens of the United States of America and so we share all that together that's great but 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 faith itself doesn't unite me with anyone unless they have faith in Jesus right I know you're Presbyterians, come on. Right? Yes. Okay, there you go. Thanks, Bob. Uh, And uh, uh, because you see, faith in anyone, anything other than Jesus, isn't even close. Paul would very pointedly say, it's as close as God is with Satan, or heaven is with hell. Uh, if you don't like that language, it's Paul, not me. Uh, but it, that's the really point of it, isn't it? And so the great danger, so for us is, we're always asking that question as a church when others are making friends and alliances. Faith in whom? Faith in what? And if it isn't Jesus, then we can't join. We can't link together. But you see how that keeps us safe? You see, that priority of keeping the main thing, the main thing, the kingdom of God ruled and reigned graciously by Jesus, um, uh, the gospel, making disciples, however you want to define that, uh, keeping the main thing, the main thing as priority. When other things come in, we can easily evaluate it and say yes and no to it. And if it doesn't do all of that, if it isn't the main thing for us, at least as a church, we can say, no, we have other things to do that are more important for us than that. Individual Christians may be involved in a variety of things, but us as the church do you understand. Us as the church. And I think as I look back on our history, when people ask me, how have you stayed the course? It's because of that priority. Not unlike, I think, Nehemiah's priority and his calling there. Because you see, the biggest danger to Christianity aren't the extremists. It's the ones who look the closest to us, but without Jesus. That's the greatest danger. I hope none of you wants to be a mass murderer, right? That's not tempting. What's tempting to us is to be a really good person, do all the right kinds of things, but that's not the essence of following Jesus, oh we, we want to do the right things as Jesus defines them and as He helps us, but the gospel is that we can't, and He did, and we trust in him all right so so these priorities keep us straight. Now, more quickly, I hope, than getting through that one, these last two traps, uh, this next trap is related to the first one. Uh, they kept sending them these limits, uh, letters to summon us, and then they finally sent him an open letter. And an open letter is a letter that's uh, open. Um, I don't want to confuse you. Uh, it's unsealed, and so it means anybody can read it. And that's the purpose of it. It was like... Uh, 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 whatever century, this is BC's version of Facebook, right? You put something up public and everybody can see it. That's the the deal. And so what they were saying about Nehemiah was that that you're going to set yourself up as king. You even have prophets running around saying uh, uh, Judah has a king. And you know what's going to happen? King Artaxerxes is going to see this. And when King Artaxerxes sees this, he's going to say, you've betrayed me. You came to me with a sob story and and all of this about your people and needing a wall and you asked me to Give resources to rebuild to help you rebuild this wall and send you back and to train a new cupbearer and all of that And and now you're building this city and it's going to turn against me And they're thinking this is great because now we have the king of we'll have the king of persia against nehemiah And nehemiah just simply writes back and says You know, liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, he says, no, it's not true. That's all he says. It's not true. Nothing that this is, you've made this all up. And that's the most he defends himself because he realizes they're doing this to try to frighten him. Now, I don't know about you, but it's good for me to know that guys like Nehemiah can be frightened. I mean, we read in chapter 2, where Nehemiah is first going in front of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes, the king, says to him, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then Nehemiah writes, Then I was very much afraid. See, fear happens. So the question for us is, What do we do with that when we're afraid? What does Nehemiah do with that when he's afraid? Well, yeah, he wrote back to them. He spoke this truth back to them. and he says, but he prays, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. In other words, don't let me give in to this fear, but strengthen my hands. I'm going to trust you to help me through this. At praying, you see. God help me is what we're to do when we're afraid. We said last Sunday that what motivated so much of Nehemiah's life was what he called the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. He wasn't afraid of God. It wasn't that. It was this sense of awe and wonder to realize that the God of all who is the creator of the universe is actually with me and he'll actually fight for me. He'll actually defend me. He'll actually keep me. And Nehemiah realized that and that meant all his other fears were gone because if God is with me, who can be against me? Well, the truth is a lot of people can be against you. But if God is with you, his point is uh, we can take them, right? So he made note of that great John Newton hymn. "Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So the fear of God that he knew by God's grace enabled him not to fear anyone or anything else. But when we become afraid, we need to acknowledge that we need to we need to consciously think that through, and he did in his prayer. Okay, God, strengthen me, help me. As many of you know, one of my uh, favorite uh, go-to uh, guys in the Bible is Jehoshaphat, and uh, in Second Chronicles chapter twenty, we have this great scene where enemies are around Jehoshaphat, and he has no way to get out of this. They'll simply destroy him. There's no army, and and if they come against him, and it looks like they are, uh, every corner of the globe, if they come against him, they'll kill him and destroy his people. And the scripture says that Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned and sought the Lord. Now that little expression, sought, is an expression that says he went along a well-worn path he sought the Lord he went along a well-worn path you know when you're afraid it's really hard to think through all the proper steps and it's really good to have a well-worn path to keep you on that path you know if if you're in a forest and you know it well But it gets dark and you didn't realize it was getting dark, but it gets dark. And then all of a sudden you start hearing noises and seeing, you know, shadows and shapes and things that could come against you. It's really great to know that your feet feel the path and know the path and can take you out, even though your head may be scrambling. And that's this sense. He was afraid. Why wouldn't he be? But he went along a well-worn path that carried him along. And we go along a well-worn path to God through Jesus. And when we go along that well-worn path, if it is for you, and I trust it is, then we don't need all the niceties. We don't need all the preamble. And we don't have to say the Lord's Prayer just perfectly. And we don't have to recite the things that we learn. We can just say, God, I'm scared. (laughs) And, and you know, Jesus, this path through whom we go, takes that God, I'm scared to his and our Heavenly Father. And he translates it. And he He makes our requests for us in a way that his Father says, Sure, I'll be with him. Go, Spirit, help him. Right? That well-worn path so Nehemiah knows this well-worn path. And he says, God, strengthen my hands. If you don't strengthen my hands, I'll give in to this fear. If you don't help me, then they'll win. But God, I'm going to ask that you strengthen my hands. And so God does. And then finally, this third, this third trap. And it may be the most devious of all. Because Shemaiah is is a priest, it seems. And he's confined to his house, so he invites Nehemiah to come to him. And Nehemiah must trust him because he goes. He wouldn't go to Sanballat ba- San in Geshem's place in Ono, but, but he would go to this man's house, so he must have trusted him. And so he goes to his house, and this priest says, they're going to kill you. They're going to come by night to kill you. And Nehemiah understands that to be a prophetic word, and it's laid out in a prophetic cadence, those two expressions. And so he, he sees him as a prophet at that point. But then the man goes on to say, So let's go into the temple and close the doors and hide. They'll never get you there, in essence. And at that point, Nehemiah starts to think. And he says this, Should a man such as I run away? And by that he doesn't mean I'm a great, courageous man. But rather, he means, look at all the things that God has done for me. Look at all that I've experienced God called me when I was in the in in the capital Susa and and he gave me such grace to be able to ask the king to return and all that work that they came and looked the walls almost rebuilt and and we've 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 uh, defended ourselves against all the oppression whether it's from outside or in and, and and who am I now to run and not believe that God will help me and then it seems a light goes on in his mind and he goes on to say this, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. In other words, I'm not a priest. I can't go into the temple. I don't know if he had in his mind the situation that ca- happened with King uh, Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26 uh, where King Uzziah had been very successful and the pride got to him and he thought that he could do anything. And so he went into the, the temple And he burned incense on the altar of incense, and he was only a king. He wasn't a priest, and he became leprous, and thus removed from the temple for the rest of his life. So I don't know if Nehemiah was thinking that, but he he knew the law of Moses. He knew he wasn't a, a priest, so he knew this couldn't be true. That someone who had come to him from God wouldn't be telling him to sin in that particular way. And so then he understood that God had not sent him, but had pronounced the prophecy against me. Because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him in order to taint his reputation. And so he was able to see through all of that. And I, we marvel at Nehemiah's discernment. How could he discern all of that and not get sucked in. How could he look at that situation and say, this isn't from God? Well, he knew God's word, and he knew who God was. And that's the life for us. You see, as we learn together the things of God, we should be learning to discern, is this from the Lord? Is this not from the Lord? If I could read... A passage from this little book by J.I. Packer about Nehemiah and his discernment. Hang with me. He says, As art connoisseurs will identify an El Greco or a Van Gogh by its style. In other words, if you, if you, if you know art, you walk into an art gallery, you don't have to read the little captions underneath to know who, who painted uh, the uh, picture before you, because you know that you look at that and you go, Oh, that's a Van Gogh. You just know that. So Sherlock Holmes once identified a complex crime as a Moriarty. Those of you who are watching the PBS, uh, uh, Sherlock, uh, you know what that means too. Uh, meaning that it bore the marks of that master criminal's mind. In the same way, Nehemiah was able to identify uh, Shemahiah's action as a Tobiah and Sandballot, Precisely the sort of thing that pair would do. Discernment may be defined as the ability to see what you're looking at and to assess it by appropriate criteria. Packer's British, so let me read that again. Discernment may be defined as the ability to see what you're looking at and to assess it by appropriate criteria. Right, You're able to look at it and you have the right standards, the right metrics in order to say, I know what's behind all of that. Right? Spiritual discernment is a matter of perceiving the qualities, tendencies, and likely sources of proposals and policies that relate to God and his kingdom. Though such discernment may have a basis in natural shrewdness, some people may just be better at it than others, it comes to fruition only through a sustained attunement to God and a habit of asking oneself at every point in life, What makes for his glory that is his own self-expression and his creature's appreciation and adoration of him? So this discernment happens over time as we learn to ask that question. What makes really for God's glory in this? Asking this question appears as Nehemiah's constant habit of mind. And we may confidently say, That his ability to see the heart of issues and to sniff out the stratagems of his opponents was a God-taught spin-off from it. In our day, spiritual confusions abound, and surely it was always so. For us, therefore, as for Nehemiah and for all faithful souls since his time, spiritual discernment is a prime need which nature alone will not supply and which, therefore, must be sought from God through godliness as a way in style of life. In other words, as we're growing together in the scripture, as a company of his people, we should be growing in spiritual discernment. We should be able to test the spirits, as John writes in his first epistle, to see that which is from God. And John says, everything that says this is not of God that Jesus isn't of God is not the Spirit of God. So we keep that main thing, the main thing, you see, all the time. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to believe in him and follow him? And you see, as we do that, as we keep asking that question, what's, what's here for the glory of God? We learn to discern, is this from Satan or is this from God? Is this good for us or is this best for us? And the older ones, you see, should be growing in maturity to this spiritual maturity and so need to be trusted by the younger ones. But the younger ones must be growing in this spiritual maturity in such a way that the older ones can see it and trust it in them as well. And so you see, we're to grow together in this spiritual discernment so that we won't be tricked. As a church and as individuals as well, and it 's through the means of this growing in the word and spiritual discernment that God keeps us safe, as He did Nehemiah, so then the wall was finished fifty two days literally unbelievable and Verse 16, when the enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. In other words, they feared the Lord too, perhaps feared him in this way of awe and wonder, but also it probably took their breath away and they said, "Well, let's not mess with this group of people. And so you see, the, the good part of, of, of working through all of this and not succumbing to these friends and enemies who want to distract us from the real mission, the, 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 the good news is, here at least, at the very end, they, they recognized oh, God must be with that group of people. You know, over the course of time from here on out, we, we have no idea how the world will perceive us what people will say about us. One of these days, it's going to dawn on some of the parents who send their kids to our VBS because it's fun. It's going to dawn on some of those parents that their kids are growing up believing that there's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus only. And perhaps the parents don't believe that. And they're going to perhaps say things I mentioned last Sunday, just in passing, I think to you all, that when my mom got saved at a uh, vacation Bible school, I'm almost done, give me three more minutes, uh, a vacation Bible school, my mom got saved at a vacation Bible school when she was 11 or 12. She came home and she told my grandmother, who otherwise was a fine Irish woman, uh, said, that's silly. But it wasn't, of course. So who knows what people will say about us in the days in which we live. And to the extent that are wrong, all we can say is, no, that's false. God, strengthen our hands. Don't allow us to be frightened and don't let us be deviated from the work to which you've called us. Help us, God. And so you see, as a people, we're going to need, we must, we must grow in spiritual discernment. And that only comes by knowing God's word and living it and testing it and trusting it and seeing it in action. And we grow in this spiritual discernment so that if and when days come that are more difficult than the days in the past, that we will stay the course and continue with the work to which he's called us, building the church. Disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That uh, if we're ever frightened, that we will know that you, God, are with us. And that you, Jesus, abide with us, as we sang, from the moment of our salvation, through our death and beyond. So be with us, I pray. That we would, in fact, stay the course. God, we do recognize what happens in our world more frequently than we want even to believe. And so I pray on this morning, perhaps especially for our brothers and sisters at First Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida. This wonderful EPC church in the heart of the city. So I pray for them as they uh, minister to those who are hurting and grieving in that city, that even as they have stood in line to give blood and even as they've gathered around to give support and counsel those who are grieving, I pray, God, that the gospel would be seen and the people would see the beauty of your church. And I pray, Father, for us, that we would grow in spiritual discernment by knowing and obeying the word so that it establishes our priorities and enables us to stay the course as a church and as individuals who follow Jesus. Jesus pray for those going to St. Louis, for our dear Catherine Corliss as she ministers in Pittsburgh, and others, Father, who go out from us, have gone out from us. And I pray that you would hold them close, that they would stay the course. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.